Welcome to Building the Future. I'm your host, Kevin Horick. You can check out new episodes of the show every Tuesday and Thursday at 2 p.m. If you missed an episode or want to get more information about the show, please visit buildingthefutureshow.com. SoupX, the Startup Expo, North America's premier startup conference, is March 6th and 7th, 2017, in sunny Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Affordably priced, SoupX is a two-day international conference featuring workshops, panels, speeches, a $50,000 startup competition, and over 100 exhibitors. For more information, go to sup-x.org. Welcome back to the show. Today we have Dr. Alan Offenberger. He's a professor emeritus at the U of A Electrical Computer Engineering and Alberta Fusion Technology Alliance. Alan, welcome to the show. Hello there. Good afternoon. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited to have you on the show. I, I think what you've been doing in your, your career is, is really fascinating. But maybe before we kind of get into um, fusion and kind of what you're doing. Let's get to know you a little bit better and start off with where you grew up. Well, uh, in fact, uh, my uh, hometown where I grew up and had all my initial schooling was Penticton, British Columbia. Okay. That's a nice and area. For those who be familiar with where that is, if you take Vancouver, British Columbia, and go inland about 250 miles, 400 kilometers, uh, you'll find the Okanagan Valley that runs north-south into Washington State as well as British Columbia. And it's, it was fruit-growing territory when I grew up, uh, and it's now mo- a lot of viticulture. Uh, and people have gone into the, the wines instead. But as a boy, I used to work in the orchards. Uh, sure. that That's great. So you, you went to... University of British Columbia, correct? Correct. So walk yes. me through your kind of university career, because you, you've, you've done a lot of schooling kind of all over the place. Well, in, uh, apart then from uh, leaving Penticton after my uh, matriculation, uh, I went to the University of British Columbia to study in engineering physics. It was considered uh, the elite program, academic program at the university, and uh, tough to nail down. It was a five-year program, and uh, and it attracted a lot of very bright uh, engineering physics students to it. So it was a it was a great uh, group of people to be involved with, and it combined both physics and engineering. So we used to get all the physics courses that the honors physics students got, plus we got the additional engineering courses. So it was quite comprehensive. Uh, following that, I actually stayed at UBC to do my master's degree. I did that in one year. Wow. I graduated from, with my bachelor's in 62 and did my master's in by 60, summer of 63. And that, uh, I got married that summer as well and then uh, went off to uh, MIT. And the circumstances of that, um, back when I was considering my uh, postgraduate work, which was always in my plan, I had applied to MIT, uh, to Princeton, and to Caltech. And I got a phone call from a professor at MIT, and this is now back in the early 60s, and he said, Alan, you should uh, come to MIT to do your graduate work. And that turned out to be Professor David Rose in the nuclear engineering department. And I thought, well, if he would take the time to phone me and... uh, say I should come there, I thought that was the logical thing to do. So I, that's where I went and enjoyed a lot of very good years 
at MIT and uh, met a lot of very, very good people that continued associations to this day. Sure. Uh, following the uh, graduate work then uh, at MIT, I should say that this is now the early 60s. Okay. The world of the late has started in 1960, and the early 60s, uh, the U.S. was still in the throes of science uh, and, and a lot of science, so there was very good funding. Um, and I decided uh, to do a thesis on laser um, plasma work, which is what I was really interested in, the plasma science for fusion energy research uh, and the new era of lasers. So it was trying to combine lasers and plasmas and subsequently link to fusion. But uh, I started on a program to develop uh, an ion-argon laser, a high-power ion-argon laser that I could use for some what are called Thompson scattering measurements to measure what's going on inside the plasma. And uh, within a year's time, uh, there was a FizRev letter that came out, and it had announced that Patel at Bell Labs had um, added certain constituents, helium and nitrogen, to carbon dioxide lasers and upped the power very, very substantially. So I did some calculations and said, well, look, for the plasmas that I want to work with, if I had a carbon dioxide laser instead of an argon ion laser, would that be better? And the numbers to me said, yes, it would. So I went to my supervising professor, Rose, and uh, said, what about uh, changing my thesis direction, uh, carbon dioxide, to do the work? He said, well, uh, if you want to, why don't you go down to Bell Labs and uh, find out what uh, what's there in the technology that would make it feasible to proceed. So I went down for a couple of days. Um, the first day I spent with Patel just discussing this new carbon dioxide laser and what was magically now a high power capability. And then the second day, because in the infrared, carbon dioxide emits in the infrared, you don't see it. It's like feeling the, the heat from a hot stove. Um, uh, spent the second day on detection technology. What, what do you need to be able to see the stuff in effect? Um, came back to MIT, uh, told Professor Rose, yes, this was a better way to proceed. He said, well, look, you've, uh, our contract is to do what you're doing now with, uh, from the Department of Energy in Washington. Uh, why don't you write them a memo explaining why you think it's uh, viable to change? And I did that, and two weeks later we had a letter back saying, go for it. Really? That was just the openness of what was going on and how any and all aspects of science were really deemed meritorious to be pursued in the U.S. So it was such a healthy climate, and that certainly made it very um, educational and uh, and really enjoyable for my my educational degree. Of course, in the milieu of, of MIT students, they were from all over, and a lot of very good contacts and friendships were established at the time that have, as I say, continued to this day. Well, the upshot was I finished my Ph.D. working with carbon dioxide lasers and plasmas, and um, I chose to come to the University of Alberta out of the opportunities that were open at the time. And again, back in the 60s, there were a lot of opportunities. But I chose to come to Alberta, and it was on the heels of three things. Um, I'd had an invitation to come up, and uh, when I was here, it was in a February of 1967, I guess. Okay. Um, and three things emerged that made me choose it. 
The first was uh, that uh, Charles Towns, who was a professor at MIT, he had been up the week before to give an invited talk here. And uh, when he came back, I, since I was coming up, I went to him and I said, well, what can you tell me about the University of Alberta? I'm going up for an interview. Sure. He, uh, he said, Alan, if there's one place in Canada that could aspire to becoming an MIT, the University of Alberta is such a place. Interesting. Well, that was a, and I used to interact with his research group uh, quite a bit in my uh, days at MIT. So uh, that was some good, good comment to have. Uh, the second is that when I was here, I wanted to build some large research activity, and it needed great machine shop support, optical, glass blowing, you name it, technician support in the lab. And uh, I explained what the needs would be, and the university said, we'll do it, we'll back you. Interesting. Uh, the, thir the third was that the week that I happened to be here, uh, the provincial budget came out. And interestingly enough, at that time, in late 60s then, Alberta on K-12 education and post-secondary, Alberta was spending more money per capita than any jurisdiction in North America. It was amazing. So I sort of added up those attributes. The university's keen to move ahead. The province believes in education. It's funding it very heavily. Uh, and Professor Town says this is a good place. So um, as an alternative to the other offers in Canada and the U.S., I said, well, this is where I'm going to hitch my wagon. So I came here in 1968, the spring of 1968, uh, to the Electrical Computer Engineering Department. That was, incidentally, growing, at, diversifying at the time. It, it was moving away from just traditional electrical engineering, uh, and they ended up hiring a fair number of people in physics backgrounds. And so the department got off into a lot of exotic areas, which is really stimulating to see happening as well. And uh, that's, uh, that's, it fit with my in ambitions and interests in physics and lasers and optics and all the rest. And, of course, then later the computer engineering became a big ad addition to all the electrical engineering departments around North America. Sure. So for people that don't really understand kind of like what fusion energy is, do you maybe want to kind of describe what that is for people? Uh, yes. Let me, let me back it up by saying that when we look into the sky and feel all that good solar warmth yeah. coming down, the sun is just a big fusion reactor. Okay. All, all the stars, in fact, including our sun, are fusion reactors, and the process that goes on in the interior of the sun is getting two hydrogen atoms to come together. Uh, we, everybody, I think, is familiar with fission, where you take heavy elements like uranium uh, and then you split them uh, to, <coughs> pardon me, release energy in the process of the um, breaking up of the uranium, heavy uranium. But at the other end, is very, the very late end, in terms of the periodic table, hydrogen is our starting element, and the, and the universe is full of hydrogen. It's, it's uh, the most plentiful. If I take two hydrogen nuclei and try and bring them together to fuse them, uh, of course, they both have positive charges, and they don't want to come together. But if I can give them just enough energy 
and energy is equivalent to temperature. The higher the temperature, the higher the energy of the particles. If I can give them just enough energy or high enough temperature to get them sufficiently close together, that's what's called the strong nuclear force can take over, that'll pull them together, make a fusion event, and then that breaks up into two particles. So it's starting out with hydrogen or hydrogen isotopes like uh, deuterium and tritium, bringing them together, they get changed, and the product of, uh, of uh, fusion are other elements slightly heavier, so things like helium and neutrons, and it can work up the nuclear chain. Uh, in fact, all the elements, people may not know that we exist, we tend to think of ourselves as hydrogen, uh, carbon, oxygen, uh, nitrogen, elements in terms of what's really taking place in, in sustaining life on Earth, including sure. people. Uh, the answer is all those elements came from fusion. So it starts with hydrogen. They fuse together, make heavier elements, fuse with something else and make heavier elements. And that's how we get the whole chain of the periodic table, in fact, uh, generated. Interesting. So back, back to my fusion. Sure, <laughs> so, sure. No, that's good. It's good. Yeah, the basic one is the hydrogen. When that fuses, the if I take two isotopes of uh, of uh, hydrogen that are particularly interesting on the face of the Earth, deuterium and tritium, uh, when they fuse together, I get helium and I get neutrons. Okay. The helium we like, that's good stuff. And in effect, that ends up being the ash of what we would produce in a fusion reaction on Earth. The other particle coming out is the neutron, and it carries most of the energy coming out of the fusion reaction, and we have to capture that. So what we do one way or another, in fact, is to have a blanket of lithium instead of taking uh, the heat out of a, an internal combustion engine or a, a coal-fired power plant where we circulate water to take the heat out. Uh, in a fusion plant, you'd, take, you'd have a lithium blanket circulating, and when that neutron gets absorbed in the lithium blanket, two things happen. One is that it produces tritium, which is one of the fuels of fusion, and more helium. So the helium is the good stuff. Sure. It's part of the additional ash. The tritium, then, as that lithium blanket is circulated out from the uh, internal reaction chamber, you process it to extract the tritium so you can take that off and use it as the fuel, as the input to the fusion uh, reaction. And then the lithium goes off to uh, uh, go through your cycles to produce electricity. So the basic elements of fusion in the sun are just simple hydrogen. What, what we talk about in H2O, hydrogen and H2O, that's the element of fusion in the interior of the sun. And that works there because there's such a massive amount of material in the sun that it can handle very slow reaction rates and still produce prodigious amounts of energy. On Earth, we're never going to put a ball, the mass of the sun together sure. on Earth. So we're working with more dilute fuel in any reaction chamber. And it turns out that the simple hydrogen reaction is not as efficient, it's slower burning in effect, than using isotopes of hydrogen, deuterium and tritium. And so mankind's efforts in fusion are concentrating on the deuterium-tritium cycle 
because in technologically it's in quotes the easiest one to to make happen because it can be done with the lowest temperature. And when I say lowest temperature, I'm talking about a hundred million degrees. Wow, that's that's so awesome. That's interesting. So I'm curious then how how can we use this technology on Earth for people that don't understand like what's happening, like wh- and like why aren't we using it more? Uh, well, the answer is we know the physics, uh, we know what needs to be done. The difficulty is. When I mention the uh, temperature, pardon me, um, at those temperatures, all matter is ionized. So it's no longer neutral particles like the air in the room that we breathe. It is all charged particles, and they have a a predilection to not want to be controlled very well at these high-energy, high-temperature particles uh, in the ionized state. So the issue is that if you do a simple calculation of I've got to heat this stuff up in the first place to make fusion reactions happen, I've invested a lot of energy in the first place, how do I get it to give me payback when I've got to do something with all these charged particles that are running around? Uh, The second part of it then is you've got to be able to confine the particles long enough in order to get more energy out than you had to invest in the first place. Interesting. So that's the key, <clears throat> is confinement. And in fact, there's two parameters to make it work. One is temperature, and one is confinement. And on Earth, then, our research all over the world has been concentrating on approaches to fusion in order to, uh, pardon me just for a second. Yeah, that's totally fine. Give me a glass. My mouth's very dry. <clears throat> pardon me. No worries. My mouth. Dry here again. Sure. Um, you've got to find that. <laughs> so, the question is, what approaches might you take in order to get adequate confinement of this very high temperature state of matter, so it doesn't touch any material walls, but does all the fusion reactions in that volume, uh, and you you take the energy out. So, the world has been working on a number of approaches to that confinement issue, and the longest-standing one, thank you, pardon me, no longest-standing one has been what is called magnetic confinement, because charged particles tend to gyrate around magnetic field lines, so that has been the longest, uh, most active uh, approach taken. And there's a number of ways you can go about it, but the most successful one to date has been what is called a tokamak. It's a Russian word for, in effect, a toroidal magnetic confinement device. And imagine a donut, it's just an, but a hollow donut that's got magnetic field coil windings on it. Okay. And you put a plasma, this state of matter that's ionized. Uh, it is plasma, and that's what plasma physics is all about, is studying the state of matter that's in the fully ionized state where everything's plus and minus charges. So you've got this hot plasma inside this toroidal donut, hollow core, uh, circulating around and fusion reactions taking place. That approach uh, has been going on now for 50, 60 years. And in fact, there's a very large international device, a collaborative program, the ITER project, I-T-E-R for 
International Thermonuclear Experimental Reactor being built in Cadarache in France. Okay, And that is the cooperative of, uh, hosted by the Un- European Union based in France and with the international collaboration of a, of a large number of countries. Um, so magnetic fusion is the one uh, one significant approach to in realizing the, both the temperature and confinement requirements. The other approach that came along after the invention of the laser uh, and really got going by sort of the mid-70s, after people had been doing some theoretical calculations in the previous decade, but the first bigger lasers were starting to emerge, and uh, one of the significant centers, the Lawrence Livermore National Lab in California, uh, has traditionally led the world in uh, building ever bigger lasers uh, for the inertial fusion program. Uh, but it's it's called that. So there's magnetic confinement at one extreme, and the other is inertial confinement, where the idea is, suppose I could take a pellet of fuel and just irradiate it with some high-power laser beams, could I ever bring that uh, pellet up to a state of getting fusion reactions taking place, getting the energy out, and then uh, doing that on a repetitive basis, inject pellets and fire laser beams at it. And this has been an ever-expanding program, and uh, that has gone a long way, too, such that the largest laser now at the Lawrence Livermore National Lab is called NIF for National Ignition Facility, and that's about a two megajoule laser, a very high power, a supremely engineered device that's there for doing the uh, second major approach to fusion, which is called inertial. And why that word? Well, it's a case of a pellet sitting there in space waiting to be zapped by some high power laser beams. And because it's small and everything takes place very, very fast in the billionths of a second time frame or less, um, it, it literally, it's a matter of can, can the particle be there intact long enough to release the energy uh, before it tends to just blow itself apart because you're heating it up to such high temperatures. Interesting. And so that's why it's called inertial confusion. It's just the inertia of that ball of the, uh, the pellet to uh, stay confined uh, long enough to make it work. So those are the two major approaches. And then there's a whole spectrum of alternatives that people are pursuing around the world, uh, somewhere in between the two major approaches, magnetic and inertial. Uh, so those that's what we're trying to do on Earth, to get successful fusion, confined reactions going uh, to demonstrate power output. But these are still in a development stage. We're getting very close. We've had to spend a few decades learning all the basic science, technology, uh, getting good computational uh, capabilities to back it up. Uh, it's been a long, slow learning curve, but we're getting there. And we think within a decade we'll have um, all the information we need that we'll have demonstrated in one way or more uh, the feasibility of fusion, uh, and then it's a matter of moving on to the demonstration uh, prototype reactor. I should say this ITER project, it it won't be connected to the power grid, so it's not ever going to take its energy and, and produce electricity, but it's more an experimental device to study than for the future, 
but it'll be expected to produce about 500 megawatts of electrical power out for an input heating of about 50 megawatts, so about 10 times the net effective multiplication. And that would be a learning ground then to proceed thereafter uh, to commercializing the, um, the fusion and magnetic approach. The laser approach, similarly, once we have that in hand and we know all the basic physics, it's a matter of the engineering skills, uh, that's, uh, the sophistication in that approach that's more the issue to bring it to fruition. But it, too, is, is on a successful path. We've seen core ignition and fusion events taking place, but not the whole pellet burning up yet. But if you could imagine a simplicity, a spherical chamber into which one drops these pellets, and when they hit the center of that spherical chamber, the lasers uh, deliver the energy, and this is all taking place in billionths of a second time, scheme, sure. time frame. When the energy hits the pellet, if it induces the fusion event, that pellet is converted from deuterium and tritium into helium and nit uh, helium and, and neutrons, and they emerge. The helium gets collected as the exhaust gas, the waste, and the nitrogen, or the neutron, rather, uh, again, gets absorbed in the lithium blanket to produce tritium and heat. Uh, and now what do I do to make a power device out of it? Sure. Well, I make it, I make it an internal combustion engine. What happens with our cars? On a, on a much higher RPM basis, we inject fuel, we ignite it, it burns and it drives a piston. Well, in the case of a, a fusion reactor with lasers, the pellet would be dropped in about 10 times a second. So it's a low RPM internal combustion engine. You drop in the pellet, fire the laser beams, collect the output heat, inject the pellet, fire the laser beams, collect the heat, and it, it builds up the, uh, the sustained energy that way. Uh, the good thing is we don't have any of the long-lived radioactive waste that we don't have to uh, worry about. Uh, it's clean. In fact, if you do calculations, fusion, uh, in terms of how environmentally we want to talk about things, we think solar is really clean and wind energy is clean. Um, in fact, fusion is cleaner when you do uh, what are called energy payback ratios or uh, economic uh, you know, life cycle assessments. Uh, fusion, in fact, is cleaner than uh, fission and solar uh, and any other energy source. So it's clean. It's sustainable because when you think of that fuel, deuterium and tritium, the tritium you generate inside the plant itself, the deuterium you can take out of water, okay, and that is virtually an unlimited fuel supply. We've got a billion years of, of fuel supply for deuterium to, uh, to make it work. So if you're looking in this century to the long-term, base-load, sustainable, clean source, fusion wins it hands down. Interesting. So how come... You know, North America or other countries haven't spent more money and effort in this space, or are they, and we're just not really hearing about it by kind of traditional media? I think that's a big part of the story that you picked up on the second half of your comment. Uh, fusion, because it has been a long, slow learning curve, 
limited by the investment in it, for one, uh, but the difficulty of the technology. Uh, it's been below the radar, and therefore not having much uh, press, like other things that you can get quicker answers to right. uh, that gets the attention. So a big part of it has been that. But underneath, the progress has been steady, the learning and uh, people involved, uh, such that when you add it up now, uh, I can't give you the exact billions per year being spent, but it is significant money that's being invested. Uh, I'll make a comment that if when I look at Asia and Europe, they have now planted fusion in their energy policy. Interesting. So that means these are sustained line-item things taking place uh, in China, India, Korea, South Korea, uh, all over Europe, uh, jointly through the European Union. Fusion is a significant activity and is receiving billions in investment. Gotcha. Fusion gets large investment in the U.S., uh, but it's not part of energy policy. It's more part of big science and, and the things slowly working to where it would become embedded in energy policy. And in Canada, uh, we just don't have it embedded at all. We had a brief period where it was uh, started up and then uh, uh, shut down in effect. So we're trying to get it restarted. But fusion is getting large-scale international attention. And you're beginning to see, uh, like you now interviewing, uh, media starting to pay a little more attention because it's getting a little more, uh, you know, one way place or another, whether it be private sector or public uh, uh, advances. These things are emerging. Uh, Germany just introduced a brand new device, uh, a billion dollar device. They finished uh, uh, constructing this last November uh, called a Stellarator. And that's another alternative approach to a machine that might be a, a feasible a device for uh, practical fusion reactors. Uh, there's uh, small companies in the U.S., in Canada, in Europe, and Asia that are working on separate alternative uh, routes uh, uh, in between what's being done in major national programs. So the progress is steady, the media attention is starting to get a little bit stronger, and, uh, and, and the investment is being made. Sure. So if, if somebody is looking to kind of get into the space, obviously they need to go to, you know, school and, and whatnot. Is there kind of a, a school you'd maybe, or a handful of schools that you'd recommend to go to or programs to take to look for at a university to get people you know, into doing kind of fusion and fusion research and creating fusion energy for the future? Yes. In fact, there are a good many of them, and I can't begin to name them all. Sure. But uh, if I take the large programs in the U.S. and, and the universities that interact there in terms of the manpower uh, being educated, uh, well, obviously MIT sure. has been a longstanding center in this field, uh, Princeton, the um, uh, University of California system and many others, University of, University of Wisconsin and, and so on. So there's a wide variety of, uh, of places in the U.S. In Canada, we're down now in terms of major educational. We had used to have a fair number of institutions. Now the two residual main campuses are the University of Alberta and University of Saskatchewan. Okay. And 
we're now trying to get the Canadian program growing again where we would have other places uh, like UBC, University of British Columbia that used to be big in the program, but it's not now. So we've uh, we've got some major institutions in the U.S., uh, some important ones in Canada. Uh, in Europe, they exist in France, in the U.K., in Germany, uh, in Italy, in Spain. Uh, it goes on and on in Holland and so on. Uh, and in Asia, China, India, um, uh, South Korea, through their institutes of technology and the fact that, as I say, fusion is now part of energy policy and therefore is a line item in budgeting. That allows your programs at universities to get a, a sustained funding, which is important. So um, institutes of technology in India, in China, uh, their large programs um, are, are really there. Let me take China as an example. They are a contributor to that international heater project in France, but at home they have bigger programs, again, that they're doing on their own in addition to supporting the international project. And they've made fusion one of their uh, major priorities in their long-term planning. And as you know, China tends to set these five and ten-year um, planning goals. So sure. fusion is embedded in it, and they have the uh, background educational institutions in Beijing and Shanghai, and so on. And I um, mean, <clears throat> to uh, support the uh, highly qualified personnel requirements. Sure, that that makes a lot of sense. And so I'm curious to know for somebody that's maybe in kind of high school. Um, is there any courses that they could take that would really help them kind of prepare to go into like a career in uh, fusion? Like obviously probably physics and calculus and stuff like that. Is there any others that people could, could take? Well, it's uh, the general thing would be coming out of school, if you have a good background in science, so physics, okay. math, uh, that's the start. Going into university, you could go into physics department, you could go into engineering, um, not every school, but physics at all schools and engineering if they happen to have a plasma physics related program as part of what they're doing in engineering. And there are many institutions, and I mentioned some of them in the U.S., sure. MIT and uh, California, University of California and so on. Uh, the few programs that have nuclear engineering uh, schools as well, that can be another pathway once you reach university. So physics and engineering um, would be the main uh, streamlines, in effect, once you get to the university level. And the field of study that you'd be going into um, would be plasma physics in, in the pure, pl pure physics approach. Uh, or it could be uh, plasmas and lasers and enabling technologies if you're going into an engineering school. Uh, when I went to MIT, I ended up being in the nuclear engineering school uh, doing my plasma physics <laughs> and lasers. <laughs> so there's a fair bit of cross-feeding and uh, diversity available in the different schools. And no, that that's great. So we're kind of coming to the end of the show. So... Let's maybe mention or close the show with mentioning where people can get more information about uh, Fusion Online and if you want to mention any other uh, links as well. 
Okay, well, I, and I can't exactly give you the www sure. dot whatever, but but I can tell you generically how to go about it. If you go in and you Google fusion research and development, a whole array of things will come up. Sure. And among the sub pieces to look for then would be, for example, in the laser fusion. Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory in California, and it's it's linked through the University of California too. So Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory, and that would put you into their web pages, and you'll start learning all about the laser fusion activities going on. Similarly, if you use a keyword magnetic fusion centers, uh, it'll bring up everything going on all over the world whether it be in Japan or China or the U.S. or any European nation. And then another category below that would be specific uh, uh, institutes or universities to identify. But many of them will emerge automatically with a generic search for uh, fusion research and development, uh, magnetic fusion, laser fusion. Sure. That would be that would be my recommendation, and then there's just a host <laughs> of places to go for more detailed information. Sure. Well, Alan, and I of really, course, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say then. Then there are the universities themselves. So whether it be MIT or University of California or University of Alberta or um, you know Imperial College in England and so on, all of these would come up too. Sure. Well, Alan, I really appreciate you taking the time of your day to be on the show and. I look forward to keeping in touch with you, and have a good rest of your day. Thank you very much. All right. We'll talk soon. Yep. Okay. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. The music for the show is done by Electric Mantra. You can check them out at electricmantra.com. And keep them in the future.